0: what would one speak when she is there just to feel her with the heart is to do yoga much more than what any reading, learning any practice, technique, anything can teach us I think this is the great message that the embodied divine comes to give us just to feel the touch of her feet a glimpse from her eyes to love her as one has never loved anyone and to love her always as if this is the first and the last love of one's life, that is yoga, the short and the straight path to yoga. Nevertheless, to come back to the process which sounds so sometimes so ridiculously absurd because the divine comes to make this whole process so short and simple and straight if we can give ourselves to him. Yet we as human beings carry the burden of responsibility upon our heads. So we like to do yoga. We are not happy to just breathe yoga. We want to do something. So Sri Aurobindo has written so much on what we have to do. But there is another way of doing yoga is to do nothing. And that's very difficult. It's the difference between sea swimming and swimming in a swimming pool. For the swimming pool there is a technique. There is a starting point and there is an end point. For sea, you jump, you have trust. Learn how to keep yourself afloat with the waves. Don't be afraid. Trust the sea. If you sink, it is still delight. If you are afloat, it is delight. That is the vast yoga that the mother gives us. But all else is at best a preparation. All the various things which we have been speaking about is a preparation for being able to give ourselves, to surrender ourselves completely, completely. So that not a corner of our being remains hidden to our sight. Nothing that resists, obstructs, comes in the way of our self-giving. We spoke last time about equality like all other movements of yoga, equanimity, this incidentally, uh, I must admit very beautifully, when we were walking out, Vladimir pointed out, and it was something very beautiful, so I thought I'll share it. Equanimity is not a mask that we wear. It's not a facade. It's not a neat, clean dress. Equanimity, humility, sincerity, devotion, faith, none of these are Masks or pretense they must spring very naturally from the soul and its touch in fact if we touch the psychic being all these things come very naturally though in a different way the psychic's way of equanimity which is the true way is to accept all things from the divine and only things that come from the divine with delight and peace and trust and surrender here we have to be very careful because Sri says all things do not come from the divine they come from cosmic forces they come from hidden desires they come from subconscious part they come from many many sources and It will do ill for any of us to let go of our guards and accept that everything that happens to us in our life is coming from the divine. Because things come from many sources. Shobhinda speaks of three occult sources of our action. The subconscious, the subliminal and the superconscious. And in human nature they are all invariably mixed something of the truth mixes with something of her own and something of the collective unconscious the darkness etc i'm not using the word collective unconscious right now in a jungian sense but you know from the general unconsciousness and all these things get mixed terribly mixed in human nature it's very difficult to extricate truth from falsehood only the psychic has makes a straight response so as soon as possible One must try from the very beginning to get in touch with the psychic principle or the psychic being depending upon what we have within us. Because not everybody has a psychic being but everybody has a psychic essence within oneself. And it is this consciousness that drives one through the roads of life, uncertain roads of life through all its anomalies, through all its unpredictableness, through all that appears to us as random, through all that appears to us as beautiful, as well as through all that appears to us as difficult and terrible. It is the psychic who is the secret leader within, who takes us, unknown to us. The mind does not know why suddenly this turn took place on the highways of life. But the psychic knows it has foreseen it and chosen it and decided to go through it. That's the beauty. And this includes not only, it's not, you know, the way we think oh, if I had the foreknowledge, I would do beautiful, only the right things. The psychic chooses to take nature through many, many things. And always in that journey, it carries within itself the delight of the Divine it's very beautiful, that's why the central movement of yoga is to come in touch with the psychic equanimity is a kind of preparing the field of nature, if equanimity is not there then as soon as the higher consciousness descends or as soon as the seed of divinity begins to blossom the weeds start encircling around it and stifle it it's a very nice little story I read in the New Testament, that someone asked Jesus, what is it that, you know, you go from place to place and say such beautiful things, hardly a few persons here and there respond. Why do you do it? He said, look, I am a farmer, I throw seeds. And some soils are too hard like a rock. Nothing blossoms there. We all know it. Whatever you may cast, nothing comes out some are too soft and porous roots don't catch so you have to have the right combination in nature not everybody is ready for yoga Shubindu used the word adhikar some have the right soil but as soon as the first sprouting takes place there are many weeds which grow around it and the little plant gets entangled within the within the bushes and the wild things which are around or it's eaten up by the animals once in a while there is a rare being in whom the whole journey takes place from the seed within to many seeds without to the flower and the fruits that yoga brings and That is worth the labor. So in thousands you cast the seed, one comes out and throws thousands in its wake. That is worth the labor. In other words, it's a long journey. One needs many many things. Patience, vigilance, humility. And all these things are interconnected. That's another thing which makes yoga difficult, complex, fascinating. All of these at the same time one cannot arrive at the perfection of any single element of yoga without simultaneously proceeding on other lines especially in this yoga it's an impossibility where you have to make an escape yes it's possible but where one has to transform nature for instance the mind it, if one uses only the mind to arrive at some kind of truth it will end up with an abstract impersonality and it's very difficult for such a mind to relate with the divine as being it cannot feel that by the very nature of its growth it suppresses all the emotions all the will, the impulse to serve the impulse to love and it withdraws, withdraws, withdraws and hits a bedrock of impersonality and doesn't know where to go from there it stops there, it ends there it can annul itself there like the old yogas Like many in the Vedantic yogas, you throw yourself into what can be called or has been called in Savitri as a glad, divine abyss. It's a state where one can absorb oneself and finish. Equally, if one just follows the heart and does not allow any illumination of the mind or any rapture of the service of the divine... Then after a while one finds difficult to proceed further. What kind of a love is this which does not know what the divine wants us to do? It is a very beautiful prayer of Champaklal who served the mother and Sri with such unflinching faith, devotion, surrender. After many years he writes a prayer to the mother. Mother, all these years I have served you. But served you? The way I thought I should serve you. Now I want to learn how you want me to serve you. Even in service, there is an ego sense. How beautiful! What kind of a love would it be which is devoid of service to the Divine? What kind of love would it be which wants only to remain in a beautiful inner state? and is not willing to come down and face the red heat of hell that tackling with our nature and world nature brings for us so we see in this yoga especially there is an integral movement shribindu says in one of the places very beautifully we the movement of nature is integral in us nature doesn't work like that okay now we switch on only the mind is active now we switch on only the heart is active Predominantly yes, but all through, all the other elements are there, backing, feeding, pushing, driving, it's an integral movement. None of us can say that I am only my emotions, none of us can say I am only thought, none of us can say I am only passions, or I am only will, or I am only the body. But all these things are interconnected, even there is a physical dependence, dependence on the body. Shabrila says that one of the big difficulties of this yoga That all the elements that have evolved are so much dependent for their roots on the physical. With all the ability to meditate for hours and hours. Wait for having fever one day. High fever. And tell the person, now meditate. There is such an interdependence. Even to meditate, in the mind, we need the body to be healthy. Because if the body is not healthy, it doesn't feed. All the energies go into it. You want to meditate, but there's nothing left in, in the mind. It's pulled down, pulled down, pulled down. The body is in pain, it points out. In fact, Shivinda says that that's why, even in healing, one of the things one has to learn is to separate these separate different parts and individualize these states. Mother says this is one of the work to be done. To be able to separate and look at them separately. To be able to detach the mind from the body, body's condition, it is going through pain, suffering, but the mind can detach itself. This is suffering, this is separate, and that is a delight. So to be able to simultaneously have this kind of vision. But normally there is an integral movement, and there is an interconnectedness. And that is one big difficulty of yoga. The second is, He says this integral movement of nature has to be replaced by an integral movement of the divine in us. It's not enough that the divine speaks only to our heart. It's not enough that only the mind gets illuminations. It's not enough as some people feel. Oh I do karma yoga. I just serve the mother. I have nothing to do with all this and this is not necessary. Everything in this yoga has to have its share of ananda. Otherwise a time comes when these parts which have not been fed by the light, by the soma wine, the delight of the divine touch, these parts begin to wilt or revolt or wither off or create obstructions in the process of yoga. So all these have to simultaneously move. It's an integral movement. So when we speak of these different things, they are more because it, mind cannot speak in any other language. But in reality, it's all together, moving together. And one can move together only if one is vigilant. Now, heart is predominantly in front. Now it is the physical. Now it's the life impulse. Now it's the mind. And behind it, everything is there. So what is to be done to start with? Psychic being is not easy. It's not so, you know, of course, some people have nowadays... As I've been saying, courses where you know you have transformation in 14 days, and psychic being can emerge in seven days, and why not? If Kundalini can awaken in two days, what's there about psychic being? <laughs> and all kinds of things go on in the name of yoga. But if you leave that apart and come to real yoga, not not the yoga of uh, a room where in room you sit and chant some mantras and you get suddenly a beautiful feeling and say I am transformed. People get transformed like that even when they visit a psychiatrist. And (laughs) they come and tell me sometimes, I had a transforming experience. I have to tell them, please, (laughs) don't use this word. It will be really a kind of, as far as I am concerned, a blasphemy. (laughs) Say that you felt good, you felt better, you felt a sense of wellness. Don't use the word, I am transformed. Because very soon, one will be back to the same rut. (laughs) So, what is the first movement that we must try? and here shubhintha says that out of all these parts pick up one which is most open in each one it's different but this is only to start the journey in some it's the heart predominating in some it's the will in some it is the mind so it's all right to start with one as long as we know we are not going to stay here and that is why shubhintha gives that you in each separate element of yoga in the synthesis he speaks of an integral movement of bhakti an integral movement of work for the divine, an integral movement of knowledge, and not a separative movement as we find in the traditional paths. In the traditional path, you follow the karma, though actually it's not really true in the strictest sense. Karma by its nature is an integral movement. One cannot have because it's action. But let's say in the traditional bhakti, You are happy with just remembering the divine inside and you know either by some kind of prayers or bhajans or constant meditation on the beloved and that's the end. You shut yourself in an isolated delight of union with the individual divine. But in this yoga it must become integral. The one who I love within me is also the one who is in everyone. So it becomes from the individual to the universal. And the one who I love Is also laboring Incessantly To pull this matter out of its Inconscience and inertia Into Some beauty and truth Some reflection of that truth and beauty Of the divine So this movement of love Also becomes a movement of Integral service Similarly with knowledge Similarly with everything else What kind of knowledge is it, which is void of love? What kind of knowledge it is, which doesn't tell me the sense and purpose of this creation, of this random game, what the divine wants me, from me at each moment? What kind of knowledge is this? So we have in every element, wherever we start, we must slowly or soon enter into an integral movement. And that is the aspect of this yoga. The second thing Shavinda speaks of is that one part which in human nature is usually more prominent. Most of us are mental beings and the highest reaches of the mind are capable of to an extent taking out, extracting itself out from the general movement of nature. And Srivabendu uses a very, of course, a very misused term. There are people who use the word in a very, very different sense. But he uses the word buddhi. It's the discriminative intellect, the intelligent will. In most of us, it's not even developed. It is still asleep because it's the last to develop in human nature. It's the high crown of human effort. The evolutionary journey of nature when buddhi the discriminative intellect develops it all already means that the human being has developed far enough and shrabinda says buddhi is because the light of the soul the purusha falls upon nature and out of mind the manas there is created this discriminative intellect within mind there develops a capacity to reflect to introspect To shift the movement of consciousness To understand what is true And what is false What should be done, what should not be done It looks like reason But actually it is not reason in the strictest sense When Normally when we say the operations of the mind It is so heavily dependent upon the sense data We must get fed By the senses Even the mind is so much Pulled by the vital, by the emotions By the passions It can easily get clouded even people who call themselves very rational I think I was speaking last time of a story in Indian mythology of Yudhisthira he is supposed to be a very very you know steadfast man his name itself means one who can remain steadfast even in times of battle how his mind gets clouded in a moment that in a game of dice he puts his wife his kingdom his brothers, everything on stake. This is the kind of process that goes on in nature, not because one is bad or good, but because by nature the higher parts depend upon the lower and are under its grip. That is the rain, it would not let it go. So two movements which must go on simultaneously, one is to extricate the buddhi from the hold of lower nature. This is a very very useful movement. And the second is, to remove the stronghold of desire on the being, the desired soul, which does not allow us to penetrate deeper. And if we can do these two movements, then it becomes easier to subsequently do the operation of cutting the knot of the ego and entry into the psychic being. It can be done even otherwise, but these two things must go simultaneously If we observe the intelligence, how it is clouded by appearances. Every time, all the time, appearances come through senses, through emotions, through passions, and it's clouded. So we have to do this daily cleaning. We every day take a bath, and we don't take a bath. This is the sad part. Every day we dress up well, and we actually don't dress up. There's a very nice thing that Swami Vivekananda said once. Every day we must bathe our body and our soul. But if you don't have time for both, bathe your soul. And I was reading the other day in the agenda, mother says, when people come to me, what do I do? She says, my child, I simply give a bath. So beautiful. We experience that when we go around the samadhi, and I'm sure, you know, moving around. Just have a bath of the divine. So every day this buddhi must be given a bath. A little bit of bath, polishing, like we polish our shoes. I remember a um, anecdote when a person was going and, you know, he was not very conscious of his dress and appearance. So, there was another person coming from the other side who was very well-dressed, tiptoed, you know. And... Um, a third person remarks to this first one look look at his shoes how well they are and look at your own shoes totally unpolished he says yes you know everyday I have to polish my shoes down below and I have to polish something here also I prefer to do it here because I have very little time some do it there, others do it here <laughs> so it's of course one should do both. It's in Surabindo's yoga outer India. Uh, but this is very important to polish the buddhi every day, to see, to not let this discriminative intellect be clouded. And Surabindo says for a long, long period in yoga, this is very necessary. Many people feel that because we have to go beyond reason, we can afford to just drop it like this. And the very fact we have become irrational, we have become suprarational again the same problem when we speak of going beyond ethics beyond morals so many people feel oh very good what a nice word if ever there was a nice beautiful phrase from the divine this was it beyond morals and beyond ethics now I have the divine right to lead a licentious life because divine has said divine is not moral he is not ethical yes that's true but ethics and moral is a passage Reason and buddhi are a passage. Here is something very interesting. You know, the mother says, those who, you know, sometimes we have a habit of uh, <laughs> turning everything, all the truths of the yoga are like nuclear material. If we handle it rightly, they reveal the deep truths. If we handle it wrongly, they lead to the precipice. Every truth of yoga, except the psychic emergence, Shurabinda says, is dangerous it can have reactions, even divine force can have reactions so the mother says here morality is not divine or of the divine it is of man and human very true morality takes for its basic element a fixed division into the good and the bad but this is an arbitrary notion It takes things that are relative and tries to impose them as absolutes for this good and this bad differ in differing climates and times. The moral notion goes so far as to say that there are good desires and bad desires. This is very interesting. It allows the poison to circulate but within limits. It's all right to be angry with your child. It's alright to have movements of lust with your wife. It's alright to have a certain greed for money if it is earned by honest means. This is morality. It's not enough for yoga. The demand of yoga is something much more, not something less. <laughs> so, here is she telling us, but the spiritual life demands that you should reject desire altogether. It's law is that you must cast aside all movements that draw you away from the divine far greater demand so what is the path? now she tells at another place what is usually called moral perfection is to have all the qualities that are considered moral it is the summit of man's mental evolution all the qualities we know honesty, truthfulness, steadfastness loyalty, etc, etc sincerity straightforwardness but here she says something still very interesting and yet it is already very good and very difficult to realize this even the moral and ethical perfection and there comes a time in the inner evolution when it is very necessary to try to realize it if we have not organized this is what she calls it Creating an individual out of the mixed elements of a nature. The first individuality, the true individuality. We are not talking about the psychic individuality. But even within nature, what should be the leader which can create a true individuality? It is this discriminative intellect which we should use to organize our life. This we accept and this we reject. Before we develop the deeper psychic rejection or we act under a higher light or the divine will, the first step is to learn to create an individuality by the use of the discriminative intellect, to synthesize and organize our being around a central idea, a central thought. She speaks of that, the central thought. What is that central thought which governs our life? Individuality is not what we believe it to be, that I live my life my way. That's, I am an individual. Very often, we fall below (laughs) the social sense and become like little animals who also lead their life their own way. They get up at their own time, walk by instinct, they live by impulse and that's the end of life. That's not individuality. That is falling below even what human beings has evolved as culture and society. Yoga is to take us beyond culture and society. But there is a step which intervenes, that is individuality. And there we must use our highest to organize our life, the highest thought. So mother says, this this becomes necessary to try to realize it. It is obviously infinitely higher than to be still guided by all one's impulses and ignorant outer reactions. It is to be already in a way the master of one's nature. Sri in several places even in one of his last writings in 1949 when he discusses the problems of supramental evolution he says the automatic parts of the body have to be first brought under conscious mental control and then it becomes easier to surrender them, then yes of course they have to be finally you know the psychic and the higher but very often we miss out this element which is necessary she says to most of us It is to be already in a way the master of one's nature. It is even a stage through which one has to pass. For it is the stage when one begins to be the master of one's ego. So ethics and rational reasonableness or governing life by an ideal reason, an ideal thought, leading a life of moderation, balance is part of yoga. Only the mistake that we make is, when people think this is yoga. There are people in, like I met people in India who say, we don't need to think about divine and all these deeper things. I am leading a life according to the best moral standards. I am honest, I am doing an honest living. I don't do anything wrong to anyone, so I don't need yoga. This is the mistake. That is not yoga, it is a preparatory movement. And mother says, this preparatory movement can be very good. It is even a stage through which one has to pass For it is a stage when one begins to be the master of one's ego When one is ready to let it fall away Sri Ramakrishna has used a very interesting term He says there is a a mango which is unripe and a mango which is ripe Now unripe mango if you let it fall It's good only for you know making a pickle But the ripe mango is full of sweetness and delight So one has to ripen, this ego self ripens under the influence of a central thought. Then it becomes so easy for the psychic to step in and govern it. But if it is not prepared like that and the psychic enters, then the nature's rooms are so chaotic that very often it has to withdraw, come. Withdraw, come. Because when it comes, it sees so disgusting. My God, this man, he wants to call me. What a mess his nature is it withdraws and we have to go through many blows, many experiences many difficulties, many painful sufferings before one is ready so she is trying to tell us a way that we can avoid it it is still there, ego is still there when we live by this uh, ideal ethic but sufficiently weakened to be nearing its end it's like before you straight away take a stick and beat a cobra shoo if there is a way you tame it (laughs) so after that you don't have to much struggle with it this is the last stage before crossing over to the other side and certainly now she says something very very hard and certainly if anyone imagines that he can go over to the other side without passing through this stage he would risk making a great mistake and of taking for perfect freedom a perfect weakness with regard to his lower nature what a term she has used a perfect weakness to be pushed by cosmic forces and be at its mercy and say I am doing yoga I am not a rational being (laughs) I discard there is a very beautiful poem of Shri all poems are beautiful where he says he said I am egoless free this poem is about the ego he said I am egoless free then swore because his dinner was not ready no I am egoless free then he goes home and the dinner is not ready so he you know starts using swearing words then swore because his dinner was not ready I asked him are you so very sure are you sure your ego is gone He said, it's not me but my belly god who is hungry. These are weird justifications we give in yoga. It's not me. I am moved by cosmic forces. It's not me. It's that, that. That's one kind of yoga. It's alright. For a certain kind of yoga, it's acceptable. Sri says, when we don't work on nature and realize the self, we may enter into one of these four states. Balvat, we become like a child like a baby child is no care no sense no shame no guilt no concept He's just happy to be this one kind of state balvat we become like children that's the best one or we become unmattvat like mad person or he says we can also become pishachvat like a demon there have been yogis in India, there is instance of a famous yogi who had actually realized the self. shobindu has spoken about him. He had self-realization. But in his outer nature, he was so crude. He would be abusive. He would kick people, even throw stones at them. Of course, he had a reason in doing it. shobindu says very humorously, I can understand him. Because otherwise, people would eat you up. He would do this. But... In this yoga, even the outer nature has to be transformed. So, first, everything to be brought under a kind of conscious control. So, she says, we can read that again because uh, very often, you know, we do many things and quote the mother and Surabindo saying that they have told us that we have to transcend ethics. Yes, of course, she says that. But she says, if anyone imagines that he can go over to the other side without passing through this stage he would risk making a great mistake and of taking for perfect freedom a perfect weakness with regard to his lower nature. It is almost impossible to pass from the mental being even the most perfect and most remarkable to the true spiritual life without having realized this ideal of moral perfection for a certain period of time, however brief it may be. It's a stage one has to pass through. She almost makes it appear it's indispensable. It's very interesting. I was reading the Gita. I had read it a number of times. And I read a particular passage and I didn't understand it the time. Later on, when I went through a certain experience, I understood its full meaning. Sri Krishna says, he talks about all this, you know, by the buddhi, buddhi yoga. You know, you the same thing, is speaking of, withdrawing, looking at, discriminating, right and wrong and Sri Krishna says there is another way the way through love karma and you leave it to me and I'll carry you but he says very cryptically a line in the middle which one can easily miss he says those who love me and turn to me I give them the buddhi yoga (laughs) it's very interesting you know they are made to go through this stage either you go through it willingly or you are made to go through this stage at some point of time in life where you learn that it cannot be like this. I have to take cognizance of this field and work upon it even with whatever little instrument I have with me. The thought, reason and rational will. So she says, it can be a short period, however brief it may be. And Then she cautions us, many people try to take a shortcut and want to assert their inner freedom before having overcome all the weaknesses of the outer nature they are in great danger of deluding themselves because we don't know the tree of imagination and realization many times look alike we can easily delude ourselves into beautiful experiences none of them will stay none of them will really go lead us very far if we have not worked upon this nature methodically we cannot afford to be at the sway of every impulse so she says that the true spiritual life complete freedom is something much higher than the highest moral realizations but one must take care that this so called freedom is not an indulgence and a contempt for all rules no, that's where she says the ideal the discriminative intellect must wake up and should govern life the central thought before we can know what the psychic is telling us many times in ashram there was a person who jumped into the well and when he was asked why did you jump into the well he said no I heard a voice asking me to jump into the well It's fine. It's not that divine may not ask us to jump into the well. But we should be very, very careful to if we start trusting each and everything from every side, we can become plaything in the hands of cosmic forces. So it's very good to keep one's head on one's shoulders while trying to go beyond. Otherwise we may find that we may become headless entities and there is nothing more dangerous than that. So this is a beginning preliminary movement and for doing this, one of the movements that Sri Aurobindo and the mother recommend to uh, make this not of the ego and desire less in our nature she says learn to step back to witness to learn to separate one part of nature from the rest and the part that is most capable of this separation is the buddhi So to learn to separate and observe at one's own self, this is a unique capacity in human beings. Strangely, when I read biology and psychology and all the differences between man and animals, the only thing that we were taught is man is a social animal. And man and animals are different, only in that man can speak. This is really absurd. Man can self-reflect and correct himself this is something very beautiful unique this capacity of self reflection of self introspection even to an extent of self analysis this ability to stand back from one's own nature and see whether this is a true movement or this is not a true movement and to put that activate that and practice and to withdraw oneself from nature from the movement of nature which is coming and. Of course we all know it It's a matter of experience We all I'm sure had it That if we withdraw We can see that how this movement Initially moving with its own force Begins to wither and fall and dwindles One of the simplest way to master an impulse The mother says is Just say this moment I want Most of us make big resolutions For the next, for all my life I'm not going to do this It doesn't work out the next moment you forget about it because it's too big a plan in fact she says in one of her I'm forgetting in what context it is but she gives this method if you're very angry just say for this one moment I'm not going to let myself speak under the impulse of anger for this one moment I'm not going to let myself move in this impulse which is moving me and she she speaks about that child where she you know asks him to fold his hands and keep in the pocket and we see that any impulse if we allow the first few moments with a very critical then it drops off and it has a biological basis to it and it's very fascinating because this biological basis is has also its bearing in yoga its basis is that human body is not built in in a way to sustain with a very high intensity of effort or energy for a long period of time. Impulse is a very high intensity, any kind of impulse. And the human body cannot sustain it for a long time, unless it's under very abnormal states where it's opened itself to very, very demonic agencies or to divine agencies. But under normal circumstances, the human body cannot act like that. So if the first few moments which are the most difficult you turn the mind away or simply hold back or simply withdraw and observe after a while this becomes weak for those who have practiced it it may be instantaneous in our anger management we often say that count 1 to 20 and it helps the anger to go down or take a few deep breaths these are all amount to the same thing and she says, don't let yourself in that impulse. First few moments are going to be tough, 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 tough. Becomes weak, 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 gone. So This is a very practical way, she says, to learn to hold back. And it helps in the process. It makes the hold of lower nature on our being weaker and weaker. And then it becomes so easy to drop it off. Otherwise, the axe has to grind a tough metal. The divine will do it. Shorabindu says that if you have love for the divine and bhakti, he will do everything. He will purify the lower nature. He will remove the veils. He will do everything. But then it will be his way. And sometimes it's very difficult when the divine does it his way. There is interesting story with which we can close and have question answers. When divine does it his way we may not like it, it may not be always pleasant, you know, God does not do only pleasant things with us so again, there is the story of this Narada, I think last time we spoke about the story where he asked Krishna, what is Maya and he is, you know, given a whole experience of Maya for 12 years this time, there is a you know, betrothal that Swamvara, where the bride will choose the bridegroom so Narada is suddenly moved by an impulse to get married. He says, What's wrong with me? I am handsome. I have 64 types of arts and sciences Narada has mastered. It's fact, you know, Narada is a very learned being. There's a story how he remained depressed in spite of all these degrees from all the universities of the world. But here, the story is that he is already living with the Lord and his company in close communion so he suddenly gets this urge I have done everything in my life except marriage I must experience this Lord knows this fellow will now he is in a different state he won't understand so Narada asks Lord for permission there is this marriage of the most beautiful girl in the city can I go and present myself why not why do you ask me I act in perfect freedom you have my permission please go ahead so narada goes lord has given the sanction what more do you need you know lord's blessings are very dangerous mother has said don't ask my blessings they are very dangerous they take you through the shortest path to the realization if you want safe journey not safe well if you want a happy journey don't invoke every time the divine and offer it because it may not always be a happy ending so <laughs> narada goes presents himself With all best attire, he's, you know, worn the best suit made in uh, the West Country and, you know, with perfumes and everything and he's sitting there. And this girl is going around and he is every time presenting himself. And finally, you know, the girl stands before the man, Narada. And Narada says, yes, I know, you're going to choose me. Lord has sent me to you. She laughs and moves away. And as she laughs, everybody laughs. Narada wonders, what is this? How can that be? Just impossible. I am the best person. So, as he is wondering, he suddenly sees his reflection in a pool of water. And he sees his face is like a monkey. So he is very angry. And in that marriage ceremony, Lord himself presents Vishnu comes as one of the suitors and she chooses him quite naturally very fascinating story so Narada gets very angry, you cheat me you first send me and bless me and then do this to me, change my appearances, at least you could have just let natural course take its toll why do you have to change my face from man to a monkey what good did it serve Lord says Narada you won't understand I am saving you from a whole lot of trouble I am taking this trouble on myself please listen to me but he won't so he curses the story goes he curses the Lord he says you have done this to me one day you will need very monkeys to save you and one day you too will understand what it means to suffer the separation from someone whom you want to live with Lord says, I don't mind. I have all my life taken curses of human beings and lived them. I will take this curse also and turn it into a bone. So it does turn into a bone, but that's another story. But Narada is saved. So we had in Ashram, when I just started this process of counseling, I had someone who had long, serious problems, marital difficulties and all this. So the person comes and tells me, you know I don't understand this I said what is it before I got married I sent the photograph to the mother and she wrote blessings she is the one who approved of this marriage not one day did this work out and I am so miserable and unhappy So, I couldn't help tell him don't you see this is the blessing (laughs) imagine what would have happened If you were so happy Every day you are remembering her Even though with pain That mother you bless this This is the result of your blessings Look So The whole moral of the story is That it is true That divine can take us Without preliminary work But then the path is turbulent Stormy Sometimes nerve wracking But if we use a little bit of our intelligence and reason, it can save us a lot of trouble that is unnecessary on the path of yoga. We have to transcend reason, but not fall below it. We have to go beyond ethics, but not become unethical. We have to live in perfect freedom of the divine, but not confuse it with the freedom of animal nature. We'll continue it. Thank you. Yes, please. Yes. Vigilance is to be. to be conscious of the origin of our movements, of all that happens within our lives, and. To make the progress, to be ready to make the progress, when that opportunity comes. Now, being conscious, the mother says, is one of the again one of the most wonderful preparations of yoga. Most of us are unconscious of what moves us. We are moved unconsciously. What is worse is we when we take to yoga because much of us are still unconscious. We have read a few things here and there we begin to paint a rosy picture justifying our unconsciousness. That becomes even worse. To begin with we are unconscious. Then because we have read nice things like supra-ethical, supra-rational, you know, the divine is... So we start justifying things under the guise of yoga. There are people for instance who justify um, you know... Well, it's a human need, you know, human beings feel the need of a companion, it's all right. It's very dangerous when you say, I am, you know, your Shakti or you are my Shakti and I am your (laughs) soulmate. It's very dangerous. Sri says the condition when this can happen is, when you are free from all desire. So, What we do is, we justify our unconsciousness. Best is to say, I have this need, I have this mixture in me. Look at things as they are, offer it to the divine and aspire to go beyond it, knowing that this is a passage, not the end of the journey. One thing that saves us is to know the mother is the goal. But very often, the human mind, instead of making progress when that moment comes, gets more and more enmeshed into it, because it is not vigilant so vigilant is to be awake to your goal vigilance is to be awake to the origin of our movements vigilance is to be awake to the progress we can make through a certain experience of life and that is very very necessary that itself is an awakening of thought and this vigilance of course ideal is the psychic vigilance but that's difficult so at least to be vigilant by your buddhi you know, that's, that's at least given to man to see whether this is reasonable or not reasonable. At least if that vigilance is there, that's to begin with good enough. And then of course, uh, whether this particular thing, how far it is taking me away from the path of yoga. This is not to say one has to be rigid, tight and all the time, you know, that that's not yoga because integral movement. We are bound to go through many things because human nature is such. The lower nature doesn't lose, I mean, someone like Yudhishthira you know, but we have to understand things to see them as they are and not put covers. And then turn everything. There is a very nice aphorism of Sri Aurobindo, The rule of divine living. So he says, turn all things to honey. This is the rule of divine living. If you have a bitter experience, turn it to progress. If you have a beautiful experience, turn it to progress. If you had failure in life, turn it to progress. If you met with success in life, turn it to progress. Everything, turn it to honey. Turn all things to honey. It is to extract that little delight element which is there in everything. And to keep it as the only treasure worth retaining in one's consciousness and throw away the rest. It just poison stuff that is to remain vigilant to make the progress to be awake to the progress needed and to make it that is how the mother describes it vigilant consciousness yes Yes. That, mm. Never go to a psychiatrist. Most dangerous people. <laughs> They'll confuse you no end. Even start. I would suggest all those. I mean, I hope there's no psychiatrist, but I can make fun because I am one. So, you know, one can laugh at oneself. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you should watch this movie, Miracle on the 34th Street wonderful movie about you know uh, this little boy who comes in contact with Santa Claus and you know he has to make a confession at the age of 17 so he has to say that I have sinned I have done some sin so he wonders what sin he says I don't recollect anything I mean children don't live in that consciousness of sin you know it comes later so (laughs) Santa Claus is very strange what kind of confession He says, maybe I had some extra you know, scoop of ice cream. He says, well, that's just not (laughs) sin. Everybody feels like having an extra scoop of ice cream. So, you see, psychiatrists are very dangerous breed. Don't go to them. They are likely to confuse you. Go into your past, imaginary. Find traumas which were non-existent. Make you believe that you felt love for your mother in strange ways (laughs) which were not healthy. Make you feel guilty for things you have not even done or thought of. So you you come back more confused. Of course, this may be a little exaggeration. I have friends who are good psychoanalysts and they are running a good practice. They made house and are living in New York City. So I believe they are doing good business means they are helping someone. My logic is very simple. But I don't know this help is more because their problems get solved or simply because there is a cathartic element in the process because when you just let go of your inner things there is a catharsis and that itself helps if you can speak out before someone it is a big help but uh, you can do that before the divine and one can do it before someone whom one trusts that apart in that Kupnisha, there is the other bird the dvasuparna one who is eating the other who is sitting and watching and she is enjoying she is the master so within us that's a very beautiful example, I'm glad you brought out. This is the state where one part of nature is still following its old stupid ways. The other separates and watches, oh fool, what are you doing? So, this is dva Supanna stage. And Sri says that a stage comes when one can have the separation so well, that one can see distinctly these two elements this one running its own way by past momentum and the other uninvolved and this is a passage everybody has to go through if you don't give the sanction after a period of time its hold becomes lesser and lesser than falls away of course there are some parts which are very strong bedrocks of resistance they don't go away just like that this is much better than fighting with guilt than you know putting a cap and pushing it below and, or putting a facade that is very dangerous I am a saintly person, holy man that's very dangerous so to see them to acknowledge them without guilt shame etc which is part of maybe if one likes psychiatric process to get rid of all these extra things which have accumulated because first we have a problem then shame guilt fear complicates the problem and then other things come in hiding social approval all these things make it even more complex look at the think as it is. This is a great ability which most of us lack and only persons with tremendous common sense can look at it or really a good reason and then to learn to separate, not to justify, not to be caught up, not to judge, to observe, to be a witness consciousness. Then these things will come, pass, come, pass, come, pass Sometimes they will drag us, drag us, drag us separate, drag us, separate after a while, even while you are in the act, something in you is separate then after a while, of course that state many people may think you are very unloving, very (laughs) so called, you know because many things one has learned to separate but after a while there comes this ability to really take one's stand within and not to give sanction so these are the three phases that the Purusha and Prakriti relate with each other which Sri brings out in his famous play Vasav Datta. that The first poise where Purusha is a slave to Prakriti. We are bound by Prakriti and she drags us by our feet. The second stage, when it is Sakshi, it's not Das, but Sakshi. It can look at Prakriti separate. The third is where it is the Ishwara, the Anumanta. It is the sanctioner of her works. So first, he is driven by her and finally he becomes the master and the Lord and the true enjoyer of prakriti because now the Prakarti is at its disposal not at its mercy when Charu Chandra Dutt wanted to come to ashram very close friend of Sri he was cc Dutt he was uh, into many things Anyways, he was a friend of Sri they are very beautiful reminiscences of his and uh, as a sidelight uh, before the main point when somebody told Shubhendu about Dutt and how he remembers him, he used to nurture a great grievance towards Shubhendu as to why he left us in the middle and went to Pondicherry. So Shura Bindu says, "Yes, yes, Charu, I know him. His face is one of those kind of men whom I have met and known them to be my partners in the great battle of the ages in the past and in the future." but strangely in this life I could not they could not come very close to me and then he says perhaps the nature of my work was different this time so when this was told to Charu he had tears in his eyes he didn't know that the lord remembers him with so much love so he said uh, ok I want to come to ashram he was called earlier he would not come you know he can't come and uh, meet Shirobindo for whom he had a grudge and he would not bow down before a European lady, these were his two problems so now he writes an excuse uh, now you know when he is coming so Shirobindo says okay he can come but I believe he smokes uh, cigars he smokes so he has to give it up so this letter goes to Sisidath, that uh, you smoke, and uh, Shrivindo says that uh, you know smoking and yoga they don't go together, and certainly not in the ashram because it brings those atmosphere, those dark entities, you know, very vital entities. So apart from damaging the lungs, it is an occult reason behind it. So Shrivindo, when he wrote this, Charu Chandra Dutt writes to Shrivindo, tell him now he is speaking like a friend, tell him. Sisidath is a master of his smoking and not its slave. I can leave it this very moment. <laughs> he left smoking just because he wanted to come. And of course, his pride of intellect and all these national sentiments and ego that he would not bow down before mother. Finished the moment he saw her. I mean, so this is the master and the slave. It does not mean that one can, you know, allow anything because I am master. Again, it's a very subtle line, but essentially to be master of a movement of nature. Yes. (coughs) Yes, it comes especially if one sometimes monitors oneself, you know. So in yoga, one uh, uh, one thing we should not do is to really too much monitor ourselves because that itself can become a problem, whether I am progressing or not and whether I am really moving or not. Uh, it can have its own, you know, it can itself, the ego can play around it and confuse the nature. In the widest sense, if you have the thirst then you are on the path. It doesn't matter where you are, how you are, to carry this flame. The mother says one place very beautifully. If you have this thirst and this need, then even the extravagances of an American youth are a path. Because in reality there is no path. And everybody has his unique path. This is the widest view of yoga. Whatever helps us to relate with the divine is the path. It may be doing exercises, it may be sitting for meditation, it may be works, it may be gazing at a picture, it may be bowing down at the samadhi, it may be simply singing and feeling happy. Now we have to be a student of our own nature and see what activities bring us in closer contact with the divine and what veils it. And this is, you know, if we are sincere we'll know it. It doesn't mean that automatically we can get free of them. It doesn't mean that because human nature is far too complex for such a oversimplistic handling. There will be moments of clouding. Many, many moments. Mother says ten thousand times many experiences one has to go through. But if one remembers that this is the central point, this is veiling me. Be conscious, whatever it you know is that. That the second part is that what is the way, the shortest way is of course to remember her, to trust her, to love her, of course to give oneself to her. If one can take it that this is my end point, then one is very safe. One doesn't monitor oneself except for one thing. What are the parts in my nature which I have not yet given entirely and exclusively to the divine? So there are many. And she will bring us face to face with these parts to keep on, keep on, keep on working on them endlessly. Many small reactions, big reactions in contact with the world and to keep offering, keep offering. That is the path which is safest. All other things can be deception. So this is the only thing one needs to, whenever there is a confusion, to call her and to place oneself and the confusion in her hands with a prayer, that you know all paths in fact she in synthesis shirabindo cautions in the very beginning that this yoga requires tremendous faith and courage, very interesting he doesn't speak of ability to meditate, a very now we can talk very moralistic being, He's not talking of all this he speaks of faith and courage and he says because the divine master does not work the way the ego would want it to work the ego wants some instant miracles ego wants that today I have turned towards yoga many people you see new entrant they come inspired by Auroville, Ashram, the ideal they are very enthused after few years when you know you start climbing and you start panting and you start getting tired you say maybe I chose the wrong path and then somebody comes and says look there is a better way Come, I'll teach you a simple technique. All this thing about transformation is too complex and outdated. This is how one is led astray Because one is in search of miracles. But yoga is not about miracles. It's a very long, patient, painstaking journey. And therefore, the only safety is to trust oneself in the hands of the master. If he is taking us through very dark and frightening appearances... One must know these are but appearances. And that's why equanimity helps. Equanimity helps tremendously. And faith helps to trust that probably this is the passage. Not to identify with it, not to think, enjoy it. That is worse, to enjoy depression. But to know he's taking us through this passage, he will take me out of it. To trust him in all moments of crisis and confusion. Case. Oh, mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, there are two aspects of it. One is the context. Um, much of conversations of Pavitra Da belong to a period which is before the yoga took a change towards mother. Now here the will, as I mean, you are well aware, it's about the dynamic aspect of the divine. It's not about the passive aspect. And Pavitra Da when he came, he came seeking liberation. So he speaks very clearly of the will, which must, you know. So it is the uh, dynamic aspect of the divine which must take charge of the yoga and not just the passive side. That's how I have understood. Uh, Now the book has come out. I had read these notes earlier. And uh, if we place it in the context of yoga, I would put it that now she would say he would say that if you can turn to the mother, and it is the mother who initiates you. So I would, you know, just put it like that. But uh, and also maybe for Pavitra that was the language he had to use.